Hey, Jurassic Pod listeners, it has been a minute. Uh, Miss you, love you. I hope everything is well in your Jurassic world. I know this podcast feed has been a bit quiet. A lot of that has to do with a project that I started last year called Least Important Things. Now, if you haven't listened to Least Important Things, go ahead and search wherever you are in your podcast app. Search Least Important Things or Find me on Instagram at Luke H. Ferris, Twitter at Luke H. Ferris, Least Important Things on Facebook, or just go to leastimportantthings.com to get all the goodness that's happening over there on that feed. I wanted to pop into the feed to tell you about a new mini-series happening over on the Least Important Things feed called Podcast Impossible. And yes, you guessed it. It is a rewatch podcast mini-series about all of the Mission Impossible movies. We're starting in January and going all the way to July when the 7th edition of Mission Impossible opens up in theaters. And guess who's joining me? Of course, it's Mike Wynn. You know you love him, listeners. Our goal is to do something very similar to Jurassic Pod where we go deep on each movie and talk about the legacy, the influence of this franchise that's been going for two decades plus. It's going to have the same vibe as Jurassic Pod, the same humor, and some of the similar guest stars. So if you missed our conversations, if you missed our silliness, it's over there on the Least Important Things feed. But to entice you even further, I am including the first episode on the Jurassic Pod feed so you can get a little taste of what we're doing over at Podcast Impossible, a Least Important Things mini-series. All right, enjoy this first episode of Podcast Impossible. Go subscribe on Least Important Things, and hey, You never know. Stay subscribed to Jurassic Pod. Mike and I will be back in the future as we get more news about the Jurassic franchise. Miss you all. Now enjoy the first episode covering Mission Impossible. You're listening to a Least Important Things miniseries. Dear listener, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to rewatch every Mission Impossible movie with Luke Ferris and Mike Wynn. Together, you'll investigate everything from Tom Cruise's running stride to the legacy of this spy action franchise. Good luck. This podcast will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Welcome to Podcast Impossible, a special rewatch miniseries for Least Important Things, where we accept the mission of watching every Mission Impossible movie leading up to the seventh installment of the series. Our task is to investigate the improbable influence of this franchise on culture, cinema, and Tom Cruise's legacy. With me, of course, is my Luther to my Ethan, uh, my good friend, Michael Wynn. Welcome. Howdy. Yeah, welcome. Welcome indeed. I'm happy to be here. So for folks that maybe haven't listened to us talk in this format, maybe they just joined Least Important Things, the family, the community, and have mm-hmm. heard more of the essay style episodes. Uh, we also did a podcast called Jurassic Pod, which is on a j- different uh, stream. It's a different feed. You can listen to it right now if you want to. And it's more of a walkthrough rewatch podcast where we go beat by beat through the movie, where we talk about the bigger themes of the films, the legacy, etc. So it's a little bit different style. If you want to hear more of us, you can go to Jurassic Pod. Uh, but we're going to have this series on the least important feed. So 
stay tuned, stay subscribed, all those great things. Uh, Mike, if the listeners maybe have not heard about you, heard your beautiful voice, your beautiful thoughts, uh, how, how would you like to introduce yourself? What, what would be your, your elevator pitch for yourself? Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm just a, a lover of cinema. Um, obviously you and I are, have been friends for many, many years and, um, we have a shared love of the media and of, of cinema and just kind of the, the, the things in our society that are just so looked, looked over, but so central and important to like what makes us like get up in the morning and keep going. So, and I think getting up in the morning is what mission impossible is all about. <laughs> and yeah. running, running. Why yes. actually, why well, I went for a run today and I was thinking about Mission Impossible because we just watched the film. Uh, ironically, listeners, we're recording this the day after we both watched it. Uh, we aren't in the same city. We're not in the same area. We did not watch it together, which we've done in the past. Yeah. But Mike, tell, tell the listeners what actually happened while we were preparing for this podcast. Yeah. So, so we had endeavored to watch uh, the movies and said that we needed to, you know, obviously re rewatch the movies before we recorded. So, uh, you sent me a message and you said, Hey, are we still good to record tonight? I said, yes. absolutely. I have to watch the movie tonight. That was yesterday. Okay. And you said, yeah, me too. So later on, you know, I've got stuff I got to get done when I get home from work. Right. So I'm getting that stuff done. And I'm like, okay, finally I can get around to this movie. I start watching the movie. I get a text from you saying, Hey, here's, you know, just some observations from the movie. I, I, you know, whatever, I'm just watching it with Shannon. Well, it's pretty obvious to me based on the messages I'm getting from you, like where you are in the movie. And it's, it's so interesting because I'm like, yeah, I just finished watching that. So, so later on you, I finish up and I get a text from you saying, I just finished, uh, how far behind was I, I had finished five minutes before you had. So without, so <laughs> without us coordinating, watching the movies at the same time, we had just set up to watch the movies at nearly the exact same time. Without even planning, that's how professional this podcast is. Without even trying, we're in sync the whole time. I mean, that is, yes. we'll talk about a mission, a successful mission. I mean, that is beautiful. I uh, I think maybe we could just like have AI transcribe our text thread and then we wouldn't have to even do anything. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I didn't share this with you, but I actually went to ch the chat GPT and ask them to write to write a synopsis of Jurassic Pod, and um, I should the next time we record I should read it uh, because it was it's just funny. Um, it obviously has never listened to our podcast and is just using contextual clues, but it was just funny how um, how how nearly spot on it was. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. But we're real listeners. We're real. We're humans. We're flesh and blood. No AI yes. is going to take us away from adoring the Tom Cruise franchise of Mission Impossible. All right. Uh, let's get into it because we have a lot to cover in this first Mission Impossible. If you didn't hear it in the intro, we are rewatching every single Mission Impossible leading up to the seventh movie. So once a month, we will be watching a new installment of Mission Impossible. Of course, we have to start January. The first one is the original Mission Impossible. In this film opened in 1997, but it's it's a actually it's a reboot, which a lot of people don't know. It's a reboot of a television series. So we're gonna get into some specifics of it. 
Um, but before we dive in, Mike, is there anything you'd like to share about your experience with Mission Impossible, your walk with Mission Impossible, how you've experienced it in your life? Because I don't want to just dive into the movie. I want to get your experience with the franchise. So it's one of my all-time favorite franchises. I just think that the movies are really entertaining. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're really well done. And uh, most of the time, they're, they're not very campy um, for the most part. And um, so my, I mean, the first movie came out in 96 and I was born in 92. So I was far too young to enjoy it when it first came out. So my first experience was really Mission Impossible 3. And, um, and so I remember watching that and I remember liking it, but then to be honest, it was just, it just kind of existed for yeah. me, this fran the franchise that just sort of existed in, in the background when I got into college and I think rogue nation or ghost protocol came out. Um, I was like really excited to go see it. So I thought, well, to be honest, I really only seen three, maybe four. I don't know that I've really ever seen the movies. So I went back and in college, I actually watched all the movies and became a huge fan of the franchise. And um, I think last year, Shannon, my wife and I sat down and did, I think inside of a month, we watched all of the movies back to back to back to back. Um and then um, so she's also she's actually unofficially on the ride with us because she has said that she uh, wants me to prioritize watching them with her as we're going through this. Beautiful. So she she is also a big Mission Impossible fan. Uh, yeah. If you, if you are a listener of Jurassic Pod, you, you would know Shannon if you were. Um, but she's an amazing person. Um, and she was a guest on the Jurassic World episode of the Jurassic Pod podcast. Um, and maybe she will be on a future episode, maybe with my wife. My wife uh, is not as much of a impossible head, um, but she mm. did. She was sitting in the same room reading a book while the movie was on. So. Yeah, that's a win. I mean, yeah, I feel like that's a win. The Shannon so she, does that for most things for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for my impossible experience, it goes back to probably in a similar vein where too young to see the first one in theaters and the second one in theaters. Um, third one in theaters, big mark for me. But the first and second one were perennial TV movies. My dad grew up watching the Mission Impossible TV show. So he was a fan of the franchise. So it was, and it was always on TV. So we watched it in different chunks and segments. But I think for me, Mission Impossible 2 was part of my uh, package deal of 90s action movies so that my brother and I would watch all the time. So it's, 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 it's grouped in with all the great, you know, action and bad action movies of the time. Uh, but then like you, I think probably once, I don't know what we want to call, call it, but the Mission Impossible Renaissance happened. And you could argue, maybe we'll debate this between Mission Impossible 3 and 4. I got back into it like a lot of Americans and it was something that you knew you were going to get a quality film, a quality act, fun action film. And now it's become part of the Tom Cruise zeitgeist. And we'll get into Tom Cruise, the production, all that good stuff. But it, so, so yeah, just one other thing. So there is a big gap, a time gap between Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol, which is the fourth one. And to your point, um, 
I think that uh, because of the success of Ghost Protocol, Ghost Protocol was a hugely, hugely popular and commercially successful movie. And we'll talk more about that when we watch it. But that really catapulted this film franchise from just like a, a three movie franchise to like a mega film franchise that is that rivals the Jurassic Park franchise. It rivals it. it honestly, it rivals uh, the Avengers and then the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just in that, not in volume, but in terms of like the hype and like it, it, it that comes with the releases. So um, Ghost Protocol that came out in 2011, that's the movie that I would say really was the catalyst behind my uh viewership yeah i think for a lot of people too and maybe we'll talk about that as we go through this one of the big questions i have and let's not answer it right now is and i've thought about this a lot and i might do an entire least important things essay episode about this but if we can find a definitive answer is mission impossible the american james bond franchise so think about that. Listeners, think about that. I don't know if we can prove it. There's obviously discrepancies. One comes from books. One comes from a TV series. But just think about it because it's becoming that way where Tom Cruise coming out with a new Mission Impossible is the the hype is getting to the level of a, a new Bond movie. Maybe not. Maybe I'm I'm maybe I'm going a little too far on our mission. But let's get into the specifics. Um Actually, you know what? You know what? One thing before I, before we start, I thought about this, and I've been thinking about this a lot. How funny would it be if, if we went through this? We did our opener, and then this entire podcast miniseries was about Kim Possible, the television show. <laughs> that is an extremely underrated concept. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome why yeah why aren't we doing that actually I, I think we should just scrap the whole thing go straight into I, Kim Possible I, Kim Possible also uh you know a feature film franchise uh, I think there oh, are multiple yeah, Kim Possible movies well th- did they do a live action one of it because there's like they did a movie of the cartoon but I'm, I'm looking it up so they have um there are three Kim Possible movies so it's it's a true franchise, uh, a stitch in time, or I'm sorry, a sitch in time. Oh, sitch, yeah. Uh-huh. Came out uh-huh. in 2003. Uh, was followed with the sequel, So the Drama, in 2005, mm. Mm. and then Luke, thank you, a live action Kim Possible, Kim Possible the movie, 2019. Uh, I wow. don't want to take anything away from these films. So we will not discuss what their Rotten Tomato scores or box office were. <laughs> Maybe we'll do Well, that'll be an extra is a full Kim Possible deep, deep dive. <laughs> but let's get into the one that started it all is Mission Impossible. Mike, I've got a lot of great factoids for you. So will you bear with me as I set the scene for us? Give it to me. All right. Uh, Mission Impossible opened Memorial Day weekend in 1997. That weekend, you could have seen movies like Twister, Flipper, or The Craft. It would grow $75 million in its first six days, surpassing the previous record holder. Can you guess it? With the previous record holder for um, weekend opening. Weekend opening? Or first Titanic. six days. First six days. Oh, Titanic was 97, so never mind. Um 
Six days, Ben Hur. Jurassic Park. I should have actually. I should have really known that. There's a lot of ties there. Just wait, and it grossed over 180 million dollars. Uh, if you adjust that for inflation, it's still the highest grossing Mission Impossible film. It cost $64 million to make and was shot in London at Pinewood Studios, Scotland, and on location in Prague. And here's the team. It was directed by Brian De Palma, who directed Scarface, The Untouchables, Trust to Kill, and Carrie. He's a member of the new Hollywood generation, which includes his buddies George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Ford Coppola. So big auteur director that they got to film this movie. Um, it was produced by Cruz Wagner Productions. And yes, of course, that is Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner. And it was their first production. There's a reason why this franchise still exists because this was the first time where Cruise went from movie star to movie mogul. Cinematography by Stephen H. Burham, who did Body Double, The Untouchables, Carlito Way, all uh, Brian De Palma films. So he's a Brian De Palma Standby. He's a Brian. He's he's one of the starters for Brian Brian De Palma. He brought in the big guns. It's edited by Paul Hirsch. Now you may not know that name, but Paul Hirsch edited movies such as Carrie, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then music was done by Danny Elfman, who did Batman and Beetlejuice. It was written by David Cope. And if you listen to Jurassic Pod, you know that David Cope helped write the screenplay for Jurassic Park and Carlito's Way. So there's a lot of cross-pollination between that that generation, between De Palma, Spielberg, Lucas. Um, Steven uh, Zalian also helped uh, write it. He did Schindler's List, Clear and Present Danger, which is a great 90s action movie. That's part of the, I would say the cornucopia of 90s action movies and 80s action movies that I consumed as a kid. Robert Town also helped write it. He did Crimson Tide, The Firm, so another Cruise film. And he did an episode of The Man from UNCLE, which was a very similar spy TV show in the 60s. The film stars Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, John Voight as Jim Phelps, uh, Emmanuel Beret as Claire Phelps, Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle. I didn't even know that was his last name. Henry uh, Scherzi as Eugene Kittredge, Sean Reno as Franz Krieger, Kristen Scott Thomas as Sarah Sarah Davies, and Emilio Estevez as Jack Harmon. Here's some interesting facts. Not only is this the only film in the franchise where Ethan Hunt doesn't fire a gun, it's the only one not to have shootouts or gunfights. Huge part of the film. That's really interesting. Tom Cruise deferred his $20 fee for a percentage of the box office takings which was a good move and of course he was a fan of the original series that's part of the reason why he wanted to produce it jim phelps is the only character from the original series we'll talk about that to appear in this movie one of the code names for the knock list is maverick which is a reference to of course tom cruise's role in top gun this was one of the first big movies to be filmed in prague after its free freedom from communism Freedom from Communism, that's uh, IMDb's language, not mine, uh, in 1989. Uh, and I wanted to pull this. This I, I looked up the New York Times review for this for this opening weekend. So this is from May 28th. Um, and, and this is the quote. 
from Sherry Lansing, who is a chairman and chief executive at Paramount. So this is her quote in the article. No one could have ever dreamed the numbers we're getting. Also, Tom Cruise is a major, major movie star, arguably the greatest draw there is. And then this is the the, the writer for, for the New York Times article. The movie's success means that Mr. Cruise, who produced the film with his partner, Paula Wagner, will probably turn Mission Impossible into its own franchise and make sequels. Very, very interesting premonition into what is to come. Uh, I feel like you could have said no one could have dreamed the numbers we were getting. Also, Tom Cruise is a major, major movie star, arguably the biggest draw there is. Sherry Lansing could have said that this summer, uh, this past summer about uh, Maverick, and it would have been the exact same quote. If she's, I doubt she's still at Paramount. So that is all of our facts, factoids. That is the plan about Mission Impossible. Please fact check at your own discretion. As you were going through that, I was looking at Tom, where this uh, was in Tom Cruise's career. So it comes after, you know, his roles in movies like The Firm and A Few Good Men and obviously Top Gun, uh, Cocktail, Days of Thunder, Rain Man. So, I mean, I mean huge star, huge, huge star, star huge star uh, at, up to that point. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I, I don't know what's I mean, his. This movie, his filmography after this movie is just like it may be only rivaled by Tom Hanks in terms of their filmographies. And it's it's insane. not necessarily box office because I, I I think box office Cruise hasn't beat, but in terms of the the notoriety and reputation as an actor they have for the roles they take, it, it's wild because we're talking about a film that came out almost 30 years ago. I'm pulling quotes from the New York times article and it's pretty much the exact same thing you would describe Tom Cruise. Now the longevity is absurd. We'll continue to talk about it. We'll talk about the stunts. We'll talk about the running. We'll talk about the production. We'll talk about all those things that come with Tom Cruise. We also just have to talk about maybe, maybe it's just not, okay that he's both ethan hunt and jack reacher that that's <laughs> like that's not fair right it's not really fair <laughs> but it's just it's just crazy watching this film and just knowing that at that time he was the hot star and to think about what happened this past year what happened in 2022 with maverick and that he did the exact same thing now it was a sequel but he did the exact same thing almost 30 years later where he made a movie that maybe wasn't expected to do amazing and it totally overperformed. Like just incredible longevity of, of making films. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Agreed. All right. So if you haven't listened to Jurassic Pod, we go uh, note for note through the film. Uh, I hope you've watched it before we've talked about it. If you haven't, hopefully it will remind you to to watch ahead of time. So before the February episode comes out, watch MI2. I would uh, say too, to anybody listening to this that hasn't watched the movies, but has, has watched and listened to our Jurassic content, um, the, the, 
you can you can listen you can listen to people talk about Jurassic Park without spoiling the movie. I don't think that's true for the Mission Impossible franchise. So if you want to like not have the Mission Impossible franchise spoiled for you, not that there's these crazy plot twists, but certainly in the first movie there are. Um, it, it may be worth watching the movies and then coming to the podcast as opposed to I, I feel like with Jurassic Pod, you could do either or. Yeah, so if you're any of Mike's coworkers who I know are big fans of Jurassic Pod, uh, he works for a global company, so that's a big group of people. That's not like two people. Uh, if you haven't seen the first Mission Possible or you haven't seen it in 20 years, uh, stop now, watch the movie, come back to us on your commute, and uh, you will be ready to go. Okay, uh, so starting out, uh, we're, a lot of Prague. I talked about Prague as being a very rare place where they, they hadn't filmed any movies. Um, now, I mean, they filmed a ton of movies there, but it's one of my favorite parts about this first movie is the tone, the visuals. Um, but we start out in Kiev, quote unquote. Um, this is a cold open. Um, let's follow the cold opens throughout the, the, the franchise as we move along. But this is a very, I think from the TV show, this is a very, old school way to open up the movie it's the mask it's the first time we see the mask um they're essentially trying to get information from this guy they're creating a scenario where this guy thinks he's in a certain situation he might have killed this this woman and they're getting information Um, this comes up throughout the franchise like where they literally have a set for this guy to trick him to 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 point information um emilio estevez just starting this off. I mean, also at that point, people don't realize he was a huge star. So it, it's not just like, oh, it's it's t- the Tom Cruise show. I mean, Emilio Estevez still was a big, big star. Yeah. At this also, point John Voight was a big star. Huge star. Not he hasn't he hasn't come into the movie yet, but John Voight was a big star at the time too. Because the tone of this opening scene is very campy. It's very television show. He rips the mask off. It's not. It's not like the rest of the movie, in my opinion. Like it, it's. It's fun. It's exciting. But it, it. It feels like it could have been in the television show, and I feel like yeah. that's probably what they were going for. I felt that way too about the scene in um, Prague when uh, they're going over the plan for how to get the uh, you know the the knock list. Um, it just kind of really felt like the pacing of it really felt like this just feels like it's a TV show right now. You know? It was very procedural, which is why it was a good TV show. Cause you could set up, Hey, this is our team. That was what we're trying to do. We're trying to get this information out of this guy. It, it worked really well. So the opening sequence is not shot for shot for the television show, but very inspired by the te- television show. It also gives us clues of the rest of the movie, which I like in a cold open that kind of teases the rest of the movie. Um, but rewatching it in a modern lens, it's like, it reminded me of actually alias, like <laughs> which alias yeah. alias yeah. was for, uh, I think alias premiered in 2001, which is one of my favorite TV shows, but it was very much felt like, the opening of Alias, which, if you know anything about Alias, Alias was uh, the the creator of the showrunner of Alias did Mission Impossible Three. So, just very fascinating. They keep the old logo, which I think is is interesting. the The logo is very very similar 
to the television logo. Just the colors have changed. They just and and the text is more streamlined. So we have this opening scene with uh, John Voight on the airplane, and we'll see that at the end. Um, one of the first instances where we see kind of the technology of this movie, which it's not outdated, but it's almost like they, and they do this in the James Bond movies where they predict what's happening. Cause essentially he has an iPad, right? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, he, <clears throat> I, I joked uh, that the, uh, the, long, the longevity of this film franchise is really measured not by its box office and like success across generations, but by the technology that's used to deliver the, the mission <laughs> statement. And uh, here, I mean, it, it looks like John Boyd's character is given what looks like an eight track or a Super Nintendo cartridge. And he's yes. like, and he like plugs it in. And now he's got like this like remote control. And it's just, it's just so funny to me. And Again, like you said, this is delivering the very famous line of this message will self-destruct, yes. which comes from the TV show. And I love how he masks the self-destruct of the tape uh, is by starting to smoke. Again, yeah. very, very different, um, very, very different time of air travel. Uh, so yeah. he has a lot of leg room. I'm sure he's in first class, but he's able to smoke as well. Uh, I don't see Maverick. Looking at it now, but Maverick is on the knock list. I, so we're gonna have to look out for that as we're looking. We're looking at the screenshots. I didn't see it in there, but this is basically setting up the idea that, which maybe happened before the Mission Impossible, but it's very classic spy movie. There's a list of operatives that can be pulled via file floppy disk whatever it is but it's about list of operatives that are that could compromise their undercoverness and that's kind of the plot of the movie if if i could understand um we meet the imf agents um they're you know what th that i noticed in this opening season we talked about a procedural um but they seem like a really great team did you get that vibe yeah, I did. Because you know what they do is uh, at the end of going over the mission brief, right? Uh, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, starts criticizing the type of coffee. And then there's like this camaraderie. It's like, well, it can't be worse than the stuff that we had in Kiev, which is where they were in the opening scene uh, for a different mission. So it's just so funny that like these guys obviously are very close. Like they've worked together on a lot. They they know they know each other um, to the point where they're willing to just criticize each other's ability to make a like a cup of coffee. This just reminds me of the teams I had working at a big corporation. I'm sure you feel like where like you're, you this is the type of conversations you have in the workplace after like, OK, we finished the meeting. We know what we're doing. And then like, let's talk about the coffee. Like it's a very corporate yeah. America business and it, thing. And it fits because the coffee in every corporate office is always terrible. In fact, yeah. where I work, we say that the coffee is appropriately priced because it's free <laughs> and it belongs in the garbage. Uh, yes. Uh, good times. Um, this movie, like I, I rewatching it again, it was like, wow, they really want you to kind of like feel comfortable. Like you're watching a TV show because you're like, all right, I'm gonna get to know these people for the rest of this like the show. They're very comfortable. I kind of like that. You kind of like them all. There's no like a hole. There's no like 
everyone's very attractive and young and engaging. Uh, no, they're not. No, so let's stop there there because John what? Voight, John Voight is not young and attractive. Well, he's the team leader besides John but Voight. But, but, but this is, this is, I guess, my first uh, quote unquote issue with the movie is it's utterly unconvincing to me that Emmanuel uh, Beirut is married to John Voight in this movie she is young attractive she's i mean frankly she's gorgeous uh, gorgeous and he is not and (laughs) and and, and i understand like hollywood will like take an older actor and a younger actor and like pair them together and in reality like these two actors are 25 years apart in age but because it's john voight it actually seems like it's 50 years apart in age yes it seems like grandfather-esque age Now, a lot of people may know this already, but they had scenes cut that basically set up the idea that there was a love triangle between the three. Um, So if you watch the movie and you see the scenes with um, Claire and Ethan, it's very, very charged, very sexual, very like angsty. It's because they had a whole part written about like making it very clear that there was a love triangle happening but they cut that out so that's probably part of it where you're like it's confusing because you're like how's this this relationship working um and i think that's a lot of it but it also makes it interesting knowing that and re-watching it you're like oh that's it, it explains a lot okay so they go into the embassy essentially they're trying to figure out if there's a there's a mole in the embassy that's trying to steal this list and sell it. Um, so we get the first person of Tom Cruise. Ironically enough, Tom Cruise is dressed up as the senator, a senator from Virginia. He played this. He played the senator from Virginia in the clip, so it matched really, really well. Interesting thing that we'll have to look at in the future. Um, I like the first person viewpoint of this whole setup. Like it, it's, it's really interesting. You see Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt's perspective under the mask and you kind of see the whole setup. Yeah. Did you, my question for you rewatching it again, did you notice the waiter looking at um, the other operative? No, I mean, I never, I, I know it's part of the movie, but I never, um, Right there. Look for it. Yeah, right there. Yeah. I so I noticed it, but then I thought it was a gaff. I thought I thought it was just an extra gaff, which is interesting. Uh, but it was the first time I noticed it in real time, and maybe it was just me remembering it. Um, so they're basically they they targeted the guy. Hey, this is our guy. We got to get him. Um, then Cruz and Kristen Scott Thomas, who I love. She's in for weddings and a funeral and a ton of stuff. Um, They basically are going to go and use Google Glasses to film the guy taking the floppy disk. Um, I have to say, floppy disk tension is the best kind of tension. Like bring bring back floppy disks because they are the best things ever. Like there's no cloud storage in this. Like they can't upload anything. Like the 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 this whole movie, like it's so basic internet. Like uploading something is like it, it, there's tension. Like Emilio Emilio Estevez has to upload. Basically, it's like uploading to Google, Google Drive. Like that she works at the embassy. It, yeah. It's it's beautiful. I uh, I thought to myself watching this, I'm like, I mean, a floppy disk holds like 
no data. Nothing. So like what, one word document. <laughs> yeah. Like what really are well, these it's probably criminals one, after? It's it's an Excel file of the All operatives. these names. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's literally one Excel file. Right. Yes. It's so good. I just, I, it's just early internet movies make me so happy because they're so simple and they're so, no one knows really how, how it works. Like I don't get how Jim's able to override the elevator in this. Like how would he be able to override the elevator? He plugged in. Didn't you see he's like plugged into the, like the control panel. There's a very short, like one second clip. Wirelessly, how is he plugged in? How can he be in the the safe house and plugged into the system at the embassy? Because because what's his face? I don't remember the character's Emilio name. Estevez. I mean, yeah, he's on Jack top. Harman. Yeah, he's on the top of the elevator. And I don't know, Luke, movie magic. Does he have a? It's just like it's just fascinating to me. I just love it. I I, I love it. Um. Apple watches are also in this movie. Yes. Um, Apple watches play a big part um, where basically it's connected to the Google Glass and they can see it. So ahead of its time in that way. Um, But it's 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 very interesting to see like, oh, yep. Apple watches are a thing now that is part of our lives. But uh, Steve Jobs was a little. Behind the ball, Mission Impossible was way real ahead. behind the ball. Yeah, Mission Impossible had this down pat. Um, coming up to the scene here where Emilio Estevez's character gets uh, brutally murdered in the elevator shaft um, by an elevator. Um, can, can I just say that um, I remember when the first time I watched this, um, John Voight's character's reaction is extremely telling to me. I just don't see, um, I mean, spoiler alert, but John Boyd is the bad guy. You know, um, I, I definitely remember w- w- first time watching this thinking either this is really bad acting um, or this guy is clearly the villain. It's great. And they, they emphasize the chair tip, which I, I don't know why, but it, yeah, it's it's really it's actually great acting in that way. Um, this Emilio Estevez kill is it's it's they cut right before the spike yeah. goes in his mouth, but it's like they literally could have done one or two frames more, and it would have been pretty brutal. Um, that would have been the R rating right there. Yeah, they were they were close. Um, this is a, this sequence is so good because you. You have Ethan. He's kind of figuring out. You, he has very much that Tom Cruise, young Tom Cruise foolishness, where he thinks he can complete the mission. It's very Maverick, um, and it's and, really Maverick. He has a line here uh, as um, as as they're being told to abort the mission because it's not going to plan. He has a line here where he's being told to abort, and he says, "I wrote this down." Um, he does this little eyebrow raise. Uh, as he says, um, we are going to get, we are going to recover that disc. You understand me. And as he says, you know, right before he says, you understand me, he does a little eyebrow raise, right. Coming up here. And I just thought this is so Tom Cruise to be like the 
ultra macho like hero like do you understand me kind of understand thing me. yeah it's it's so tom cruise and it works really well i love the the framing and the, the cinematography and just the the pacing of the scene you know very very clearly where everyone is just the way they shot it um, with the bridge and kind of the backside of the river. Uh, it's De Palma is a fantastic director and it really shows in this first one of setting kind of that tension. A lot of De Palma movies, he does more, th- you know, thriller into some kind of horror genres. And he's very, very good at setting kind of the tension and letting the tension build. It, it's what stands this first one out is there's a lot more tension. We talked about that. There's really no guns in this movie. There's no shootouts. It's a lot of this tension and the the setting of Prague, kind of the dampness, the coldness. It I I love it. Um now we enter the first of many Tom Cruise running in the Mission Impossible franchise. Uh I texted you about how difficult it was to keep up. I've got him. Running to the bridge, running from the bridge, um, running to the phone booth, running to Sarah, or running to Sarah, then running to the phone booth, saying, my team is dead, uh, which is great. It was just a great line, just screaming. Yeah, and, my um, team is dead. Um, my team is dead. dead. Um, <laughs> so good. And then he, uh, then he runs... Okay, then then he then we go to the the um the restaurant scene. And if I if I'm if I'm getting fo- too focused on the runs, just let me know. No, um, no, I think there's not enough focus on the runs. So um, then he gets so basically essentially his team team dies. Everyone goes down. Um, it's very tense. Such a good scene. And uh, then he goes to he calls his kind of the CIA operative, the higher up, and um. Basically, it was like, okay, let's meet at our, our place, which is a restaurant that has an aquarium on the top of it. The character of Kittredge is one of my favorite Henry Henry characters. Zerny. Henry Zerny, who plays Kittredge, is fantastic as not the full he's antagonist good. because we do, we realize that he's, he's not. He's a good red herring. He's a red herring. Um, we kind of think he set this hole up. Essentially, their whole mission was to see if there was a mole within their IMF team. Um, if this and, movie was directed by directed and written by Wes Craven, this character's name would not be Kittredge. It would be Red Harrington. Yes, it would be Red Harrington. <laughs> um, he is also... He's a Canadian actor, and I did hear a couple of Canadian slips, but he is... I wouldn't say a similar role, but a very similar role in Clear and Present Nature, which was also uh, written by Stephen uh, Zalian. So, and he plays almost the exact same character in Clear and Present Danger. He's essentially kind of the bureaucrat intelligence officer following the rules, getting in the way of our hero. And he plays the same character. He's amazing. This aquarium seems so good. We have all these Dutch angles. If you don't know what a Dutch angle is, it's essentially you're looking at somebody, and in this case, it's usually lower than their face, and the camera's tilted as an angle. Essentially, it helps build tension. Um, and they're going back and forth. Ethan's figuring out what's going on. He's essentially going to be framed slash targeted as the mole. And this is where we get our first... Tom Cruise 
full stunt spectacular. He uses the gum that was that was kind of hinted in the in the at the beginning of the movie. Uh, the uh, what was that gum we had when we were kids? Like the zebra gum. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, that's kind of essentially what it looks like. essentially a zebra gum that is C, a C four explosive, and uh, he blows he blows up the aquarium that's above their table, and that's how he gets away. Tom Cruise. This was kind of his first big out of the franchise. This is his first. Tom Cruise did the stunt. He does the stunt where he jumps out of the restaurant, and then we get another running, which is. Run number five in my count. And I'm counting a run as um, point to point. So this is his fifth run yeah. from point to point. His fifth run from the restaurant into the city square in Prague That's with the water. Fish. Great stunt, though. Such a good stunt. So I, I had texted you that um, Rotten Tomatoes had done the research for us on this. Yes. Um, uh, God bless him. Uh, let me let's see if I can get the authors. Uh, Mark Hoffmeyer. God bless you. And Mark did a good work. This is before uh, Mission Impossible Fallout came out. Um, but he uh, he wrote an article for Rotten Tomatoes analyzing the box office success of Tom Cruise's movies with the amount of running he does in the in number of feet. And um, found some correlation humorously enough that the more feet he runs, the better his movies do. And in this movie, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise runs for 730 feet. So we're going to keep a running tally uh, as we go through these movies of how many how many feet he runs in each movie. 730 feet, which is actually pretty low for his standard. Is that is that correct? <laughs> It's on the high. It's actually on the higher side, but um, it's it's he certainly has movies where he's more pro. He's he's got more prolific running stats. Yes, uh, I feel like he had short sprints throughout this movie. Short running sprints. So he goes back to the safe house. He's freaking out. It's it's great. Tom Cruise. It's a great character for Tom Cruise. He's panicking. He's a young guy. Um, this team is dead. His team's dead. He's panicking. It's so good. And then he figures out um, that I kind of got lost here, but essentially there is the, my favorite, the job. Was my favorite part of this scene is, I don't know if you caught this, but Tom's he, so now he's sitting in front of the laptop and he's trying to, he's trying to put the pieces together, right? Yes. Cause he's right. And, and so he's, he's got, at least got a laptop. So here he types into the computer internet access. Yes. He types in to the computer <laughs> as a command internet access. <laughs> it's like he's it's like googling Google. It's like then, I, I, I'm googling Google so I can get on Google homepage. So he does. He also does a um, a thing here. He notices that there's a Bible behind the computer. He's trying to piece these things together, right? So, but he also has a gun. Kittredge said job. 314, which is his clue. So, yeah, he's trying to figure what that means or whatever. But I think it's humorous here um, that on uh, he picks up the Bible off of the book stand and realizes it's not Job, it's Job. So he starts looking for for the book, for the Bible reference, Job 314. Um, and uh, so he's got this Bible. And so his his work setup has he's got a Bible on his left 
a computer in the center and a gun on the right. And I just think that that's so funny. This like juxtaposition, this juxtaposition of these three items. He's got a Bible and a gun. And really, what else does Tom Cruise need? He doesn't need much. Uh, it's you could be uh, at a, every home in Southwest Alabama, uh, honestly. Um, but what do you think? So he's searching for this, uh, you know, Book of Job discussion group. <laughs> Let's talk about the Book of Job discussion group. What are they discussing in the Book of Job discussion group in your mind? I mean, despair. Despair. Um, yeah, I just actually. Uh, I actually just finished reading Job um, myself. I, I, I ironically, no, yeah, ironically, like I, I just finished it. I spent two weeks reading it, and I finished it just the other day. It's definitely an on the nose reference because if you know much about the the Book of Job, or you know, if not, please join the Book of Job discussion group. Right, yeah, uh, it is definitely a a passage of sacred text that is about lament it's about struggle it's about pain it's about confusion it's about authority it's about losing your losing the things that you have so it's very connected with the whole franchise um it's it's it's, again it's a little on the nose if you if you know a little bit about the book of job uh but it's it's fun and i think it's interesting is that he does email every single member of the book of Job, uh, which yes. I felt like this whole sequence and maybe I'll make a little bit for our Instagram at Luke H. Ferris, TikTok at least important things about I feel like it captured the work from home corporate oh, yeah. mindset of like you're literally falling asleep as you're writing emails and waiting for people to respond it's like that's what it is yes uh, outside of the gun and maybe the bible but it, it definitely felt like a very work from home uh, it really did it really did i i just love that the um the email address that he sent to like we're so we know what email addresses are they're so common to us in 1996, yeah. not not many people used email, or certainly far far fewer. And the email address that he's sending to is max at job314, as if like that's going to land. Like that 100% of the time comes back undeliverable. I feel like we need to f- see if that like we can get that email. We we probably should try yeah. it out. We should we need to like I think make so. that the 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 email for the miniseries. Also, couldn't have he just done like a, a CC everybody? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, or a BCC because he doesn't want a everyone B- to no, know. Yeah, yeah, right. B, he should have done a BCC everybody, and that would have solved it. He literally could have done that in two minutes, and it would have what solved all his problems. What if he had like to recall the message? Like, what is recalling emails in 1996 in the Book of Job discussion group? But you know what? We have to give him credit because, like, as much as Ethan Hunt is a master spy, he's probably not apt in email etiquette uh, at this point in the history. So, um, to, to keep moving, we got to keep this train going uh, until we get to the actual train. Uh, Claire comes back, Ethan suspects her. This whole scene is like, it, it's very weird. Um, when my wife was watching, quote unquote, watching in the background, she was like, wow, this is getting intense. And I was like, well, 
we didn't know this, but they were supposed to be lovers in this triangle. And again, it's hinted at throughout the movie, but not it's not as clear as like most movies. Like they almost kiss in this scene, but they don't. It's well acted. It's just it's just ironic to me. Um, so then basically what happens is uh, Claire and Ethan are like, OK, let's figure this out. Let's try to see who the mole is. They get yeah. a buyer in London um, who who's a great character. Um, she she's she's basically going to buy the list um, and she has these long haired guys as her like minions. Um, the, um, this is jumping ahead just slightly, but Ethan finds out that this list she was like, he finds out what the price that she was willing to pay for this list. I think it's six million dollars. And um Frankly, six million dollars for a list of every agent in uh, Eastern Europe uh, in their identities—tremendous deal. It's a great deal. Stri- if you can strike <laughs> that deal, <laughs> I think it's a great price for her. <laughs> I'd take that deal any any day of the week. She's a great businesswoman, so uh, she's figuring it out. And uh, I love her character. I wish they would bring her back. Um, I think they they will bring her back in a different way. Her type of character is okay. Her type of character. Okay. Just, just wait, wait for that type of character to come back. Um, because to no one's surprise, the big part of mission impossible is Ethan being, uh, for, I forget the term extradited or blacklisted from INF. Like this will happen more than once throughout his career. Oh yeah. It's the norm. It's a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. This is going to happen all the time. And essentially what happens is Ethan, he basically promises to deliver this. And you know what I love about this? Because a lot of spy movies, they move past the financials. This is all setting up that he needs the money to hire a team to get the job done. She's investing into his scheme, essentially. Yeah. So to your point about her type of character coming back. Do you not think that Solomon Lane is that type of character? I mean, he's like an arms dealer, uh, kind of like a sociopathic terrorist. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think they lean into that character more in the later movies as kind of the middleman. Oh, are you saying black market to the listeners? Do you think this type of character is going to come back? Or were you telling me that you think this type of character is going to no, come I'm back? No, I was saying to the listeners. I was saying, I'm watch. so sorry. <laughs> Mike was like, Luke, I think that actually is true. Here I am. I think just, it's actually true. I'm playing, I'm playing active defense against this podcast. I know. I know. It's good. We we got to get our sea legs. It's been a while. Uh, we're 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 coming back from retirement. Um, okay, let's move on to getting the team together. Um, what do you make of this first outside of the team that was killed? Um, disavowed is the word, by the way. Uh, he Ethan gets our disavowed team members. It's a small team compared to other Mission Impossible movies. It's really four people. Um, yeah. It is uh, Ving Rhymes as Luther, um, and then uh, Jean Reno, the who you know from yeah. He's uh, and previously he had done the professional or uh, uh, Leon the professional uh, with Natalie Portman. So again both two guys that had been in the zeitgeist in more indie films, Fing Rhymes, of course, 
was in Pulp Fiction before this. So two guys that were not huge stars, but both in big, successful yeah. indie movies. I think, I, I think something that um, people people probably think like, I, I would say the greater public at large, Ving, Ving rhymes to them as kind of like somebody whose career only exists in the Mission Impossible movies. But I would posit to those people to just look at his filmography because this man is a prolific working actor. He is yes. everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, of course he has a big role in the mission impossible movies, but he is not, uh, you know, just living off of the paychecks from mission impossible. Although he pretty probably could, but he probably I mean, could. He, is, he is, he really is like a, a very, very successful actor who's got many jobs yeah he's he's done so much both of these guys are great journeyman actors character actors uh, but they both at the time were recognizable and again they weren't too dissimilar they weren't like out, way out of the realms of those previous characters they were known for but they bring a texture and and, and I guess they uh, uh, when we think about teams and wolf again, look out for this as as we bring the teams together in mission impossible you'll see these type of actors that maybe have a couple credits that are well known but bring a lot of energy to the story and of course luther as a character and we'll maybe talk about this is there's a scene there's a moment after after the uh the famous cia um pentagon caper that to me is the moment of the franchise so what what are they going to do mike they're going to go and go to langley and try to steal steal the declaration of independence the declaration of independence also known as the knock list uh this to me is probably if not the greatest but one of the greatest caper scenarios in all of cinema yes agreed 100%. The way they set this up and the types of challenges and hurdles and roadblocks and systems that are in place at, you know, that that make this difficult. I mean, it's just one of the one of the best thought out um uh devices in film. Like the like the 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 amount of craftiness that Ethan and his team have to use in order to get this um frankly is is kind of impressive and i do i mean there are there's there's reasons to be critical of this i mean obviously they have to they have to succeed so there are plot holes or, or not plot holes but there are holes that you can poke through and say well that would never be the case well well none of this really would ever be the case so uh i i i'm always really impressed with this i feel like every time i watch this movie they get to the point where they are explaining this and in, in, in the difficulty level. And every time I think, I don't know how they're going to do it. <laughs> no, no. It's like, and, and in the, in the scenes, they say that like, this is impossible, but it's why like specifically Luther, it's why he wants to do it. Cause he like to him, it's the challenge that gets him excited, um, which is him and Ethan as a character duo, the it's the boldness and craziness of Ethan and the, I guess the professionalism and the desire to achieve and be the best of Luther that make them such a dynamic team. 
I think this is the beginning of the tropes that we'll see throughout the franchise of, yes, this plot is crazy. Yes, them, you know, fire department getting in, the whole thing. It's wild, but it's great cinema. And it's the reason why these movies are so fun to watch is because they clearly outline the stakes. It's very specific about like what's going to happen. Well, temperature, noise, all these things that make it very, very difficult to make this mission impossible. It's outlined in a very exciting way as a viewer. And you and you know what it's at stake. You know the tension. It's they're at they're in the CIA headquarters. I mean, this is as real as it gets. I love that it's it's in the building where Kittredge is. So it's like it's even more exciting. The guy who plays the I don't know what his his actual title is, but the IT oh, guy, yeah. he is I, he, it's like a Rowan Atkinson level. He's the perfect level. bureaucrat. Yeah, it's like a Rowan Atkinson level performance where he has literally almost no lines, barely lines, and he's he's showcasing everything. The one moment where it took me out of it was, <laughs> and maybe it fits because he's a bureaucrat, not to stereotype, he's an IT guy, he's a nerd, was that Claire sits down next to him in the break room she sits right next to him and he doesn't even notice her. That was the one time I was like, this beautiful woman is literally sitting right next to you and you don't even notice her. In a red well, dress. He clearly too. has beautiful women sit next to him all the time at work. I guess. I just think that whatever he was reading in the Washington Post must have been riveting for him to just be totally out of it. So uh, the, the guys get in. They get in through uh, being... Um, Firemen. Fireman. Um, yeah. Tom Cruise. Uh, Ethan stops uh, uh, Eugene from from or Franz from killing one of the guards. That'll set us up later on. And then essentially, what they do is they make our beautiful, kind IT guy. They make him sick, so he is able to get into the facility what do you think what do you think that she puts in his drink like it's like some high concentrated i don't know something or just something like that makes you throw up at least three times i'm just trying to think about like what that it, would be it must be like really old oyster water brine or oyster <laughs> brine like some seafood brine that's been like sitting <laughs> In a plastic container for eight days. Here I am like, thinking of like really practical things. Like she put like rubbing alcohol in there, and you're like, no, no. They 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 went and they got oysters at a Joe's Crab Shack, and then like left it out for a left little it in bit. the back of the van for a while. Well, because it was in the coffee, and the coffee would cover the bitterness of that, and just like. I felt for him because, like, I I got food poisoning uh, early, last year uh, from from yogurt, and it was very much the same feeling that he had uh, running to the bathroom. So this scene where Tom Cruise, another, this is again, I wouldn't say this is a f- impressive physical, like insane stunt, but his stunt of him going down. I love that they cut the music. It's super quiet. Yes. He's I elevated over the computer. Again, floppy disks, uh, trying to get the data, the sweat, uh, the, the craziness of like the mouse coming in. Yeah. I mean, that, that as well. Again, it's another character 
cue because he kills the mouse with his knife. Um, so we know that Franz is a killer. And yeah. and they do this subtly in this whole sequence. They're like, Franz is a killer, and it sets up the whole idea that he he's actually a bad guy. Yeah. Um, I have a, a question here about um costume. Yes. So this is the first time in the movie Ethan wears glasses. So yes. why? If it was so important that uh, nothing the goo- be dropped. It's the, goo- it's the Google glasses. So uh, Vin Rhymes can oh, see him. So Luther okay. can, can watch him. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And then I realized it was when they cut to it. Like you That's can see there. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a hot look, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's just like, why is he wearing glasses? The whole time it's, I was just thinking like, if it's so important not to drop anything, why does he need? But it totally makes sense. I I neglected to remember that detail. Ving Rhymes, like we talked about, we talked about this, his quietness of him talking through the scene yeah. is not practical. No. It doesn't really make sense. Like he, he's not loud enough to set off the trigger, but it a lot it, it builds the tension because it's telling us as an audience you're supposed to be quiet. Yeah, it, it this really is a um a good scene. And I think an underappreciated part of this heist is one of the details is um, that temperature change in the room can uh, set off the alarm. And um, they are very clever in that they lower Tom Cruise into the vault. um, And then just before the temperature hits the mark where the trigger would go off, this this guy walks back into the vault. And then uh, that kind of resets the system. Um, and so once that guy leaves, the air conditioner is just supposed to regulate the temperature with Tom Cruise's body in it. So now the temperature is not even a part of their plan. It's just very clever, like heist design planning, like, Hey, once we're in the room, we don't have to worry about the temperature anymore because, uh, it'll regulate based on Tom Cruise's body temperature. I never even, I never even realized that. Yeah. That's actually brilliant. That makes it even more brilliant. That's so cool. But the water is is the big problem with yes. this. Yeah. Uh, it's Franz drops him. There's that tension of him waving around. I mean, it's such a great sequence. It's so tense indu- inducing. But essentially, he he gets out. He gets the file. He gets the floppy disk. Um, one of my favorite things in here that feels very accurate is that when when our good friend uh our good company man comes back he logs in and he sees that someone has f- downloaded the file which yep. is very accurate if someone like if you're on your macbook and you download something like you can see that it has been downloaded yeah and I, I think it's a very like yeah he would know that somebody went in there um but they get away they get away in the fire truck I love the line uh, that Kittredge says. He says, like, send him into Alaska or something like that. Like, I want him in Alaska yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, him, yeah. And he says, just mail him his clothes. I'm like, oh, it's brutal. <laughs> it's so good. It's just absolutely brutal. Um, uh, we have Ethan Hunt doing magic, uh, sleight of hand magic. Um, yes. Again, teasing the idea that Franz is kind of gunning for the information. Um, 
then I think, again, I mentioned this earlier, probably the most important sequence, I think, of the entire franchise. I'm going to say one of the most important things of the entire franchise, Ethan has basically he made he has two floppy disks one will have the necklace one doesn't and he's playing this cat and mouse game with franz afterwards he goes into the trash can luther's like oh you franz had the actual list the whole time and they talk about it and ethan gives luther the list so there's this trust build this idea that Luther knows the importance of it. We see it earlier in the scene where he's like, oh, it's the knock list. And Ethan yeah. says, you know, it's because I knew you were like, you you were scared about that. You knew the significance of it. Yeah. Well, he's a disavowed agent. He probably still has, I don't know if agents have friends, but you know, I imagine that he has old friends or people he knows that are still in the field that this would be, life or death if this ever got out in the open right i never even thought about that like his but his but old buddies could be in danger yep he knows the power of it and that to me right there that trust and luther's kind of taken aback like wow you give it to me and they do a little like (laughs) bit there with luther doing the sleight of hand but to me that is the foundational of their relationship those two characters throughout the entire franchise it's such an important moment um ethan sees on the tv that his mom and uncle are being framed essentially for running drugs in pennsylvania another thing i forgot to mention uh when he's having dinner with kittredge in prague kittredge says talks about his dad being sick and all this all this backstory of the family farm i didn't remember that it's something to be aware yeah, of when we think too. about when you think about Ethan Hunt as a character that he's got a family. Like he's taking all these risks, but he's got a family. I can't tell if his dad's dead or dying, but just something to, for us to to watch as we as we move on. Yeah. And he uh, he again sees his uh, mom and uncle at the TV. He calls Kitchers in London, um, just kind of as a ploy. And then we see that Jim Phelps has resurrected from the grave, John Voight in a nice trench coat. They have a nice scene at at like a kind of like a little tea house in London. I thought this was interesting that essentially what the movie does is that Jim knows he's betraying Ethan, but he doesn't think Ethan knows. Right. Us as viewers... We don't know if Ethan knows that he was the actual mole, but we are shown that Jim actually did it, how he did it in Prague, how he betrayed the team. Oh, I disagree. I think Ethan, I think what we're seeing is what Ethan is putting together in his head. Oh, because he keeps talking through about but but he he keeps talking through it but You're in right. his conversation with Jim he is talking as if Kittredge is the one that's doing it and so he's like basically talking with Jim saying oh and then Kittredge is this and then at, at the end he says well I don't know how he would have killed so and so in the car uh he was he must have had a second person alluding to Claire uh, and then, because uh, he doesn't know if that's the big thing is he doesn't know that Claire is in on it or if she is. And he's like, oh, yeah. no, he could have he could have done that himself. 
And so Ethan is, is revealing to the audience that I know who did this. But oh, okay. Jim, I didn't catch Jim that. doesn't know. Jim that doesn't Ethan knows. know. Yes. Because he, Ethan says that later on. He says, I knew before uh I before London, which so before that he um met him at the telephone booth, but not until after he saw the Bible from the Drake Hotel. Yes, the Bible with the Drake Hotel was a clue. So Ethan did already know. Uh Okay, thanks for explaining that to me because I was a little confused, but it makes more sense the way Tom Cruise acted as it, as he's like trying to fool Jim. I thought there was a great line when Jim's talking about Kittredge because they're saying Kittredge is the mole and he's talking about the Cold War and that you're not e- needed anymore. And it's kind of, it's Jim projecting. We're learning why he's doing this. He's The idea is that the MIF is is not important anymore he was a uh, product of the cold war and this hints back to the television show of like it's connected to the show because it's the idea of like what if where's jim phelps in the 90s from the tv show well his team's not needed anymore the imf is not being funded all these things it was a big reason why when this first movie came out it was super successful but there was a core of the Mission Impossible television show fans that did not like this cuz essentially you made Jim Phelps who was the main character of the television show the villain. But I think it's very clever if you think if you follow the timeline of like from the Cold War to the 90s like this would be a bitter old bureaucrat that didn't feel valued anymore and was just trying to get his they have this scene and this sets up essentially what is the final sequence on the train. So Ethan is going to deliver the goods uh, to the buyer. Um, They're on the train. Um, As an audience member, we don't know where Ethan is. Um, And essentially the camera shows that we're supposed to think it's Jim Phelps. Luther's there. He's, um, He's trying. He's he's bugging the internet upload. Uh, apparently, um, he's he's messing with the Wi-Fi. Um, Luther, you should have just had Comcast uh, be a part of this, and that would have just solved all your problems. Um, just have a uh, conglomerate internet provider and blame it on them. Uh, AOL, <laughs> AOL, whatever it is. Um, they're trying to upload basically the file, uh, so they have it. Um, and then we get the big reveal. Hunt uses the mask. That's the fourth mask. So let's follow that. Let's keep a track on that. That's the fourth mask reveal. Ethan is dressed up as Jim. He, he uh, reveals it to Claire. He finally figures out that Claire is on Jim's side. Again, this would probably be more emotional if they were lovers. It's implied that they're lovers. Uh, Jim implies it, um, but it's, right. it's it's not as clear. It's clear when you know about it, but it's not as clear. Um, and then it's we get the train. This movie is not that long, so no, it's, it's weird. It might that be they chose one of the shorter it, of all of them. And part of that is it came out in '96, right? Movies have gotten longer since then, but it it is odd um, that they I don't know cut five minutes. Uh, to do that the movie didn't really suffer because of it it's still a widely popular movie it's still a great movie um but uh could have been that much better for five minutes i think they could have added it but i understand why they cut it um 
we get the, cause like there's this moment where like Ethan's very sorrowful because Jim shoots her and it's, it's like, okay, why does he care about her? Um, we get the, the final sequence on the train. This is really the only big CGI shot. Um, it feels dated when you're watching it, but the cool thing is, so when they film this, it's obviously green screen focus, but the wind is not. So Tom Cruise was, this is the beginning kind of origin story of Tom Cruise trying to push the limits. He brought in like those huge wind machines that use are used on cars are used for, uh, I don't know if you've ever done this, Mike, but it's essentially, you can do skydiving inside. It's those yeah, skydiving machines. I haven't machines. done it, but I know it. Yeah. He essentially used one of those to get the 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 accurate wind action of a bullet train going through France, um, which is it adds to the element. Even though it is CGI focused in the background and it has aged, the wind action I think keeps that tension alive. Um, the helicopters tracking them um, seems like a stupid exit plan, but. Um, I love that the gum come back is comes back. Uh, red light, <laughs> red light, and then he uses the gum to blow up the helicopter. Ethan uses the, like the explosion to jump onto the train in a great shot. It's aged a little bit with CGI, but like I remember that it's being the most used. Mission Impossible two part of the film. Yeah, it, and it's used a lot in like Mission Impossible advertisements. I remember that being in the trailer. It's a it's a great shot. Um, and the helicopter explodes. It falls towards the train, and the blades throat. barely cl- cuts his throat. This is the like this is uh, the most dramatic part of the movie. That's feels very Mission Impossible in the future yeah. in the future movies. Um, also, then, shout out to whatever company made the windshield wipers for that train because man, can those things take a beating? <laughs> they were really taking a beating. We learned that Ethan was working with Kittredge. Um, they're able to to get the buyer to to nab the buyer, um, and all is well. Uh, Ethan and Luther have a great moment. They're sharing a pint um, and talking about it. Um, essentially, this is setting up the idea that they could work together in the future. Um, just love these these guys. This this bromance is one of the best bromance in cinema. I agree. Yeah, it's one of those things that whenever a Mission Impossible movie comes out, and Benji when he comes into the movie, oh, it gets later even on, better. It gets, it gets just, even better. But it's so much love. Uh, Ethan has exonerated himself. He is flying home to America on British Airways, and we get the callback that we started with Jim with the. Uh, cassette um giving the him super, his the mission super nintendo. sorry the super nintendo cartridge um he did have to blow it when he put in the put it in the <laughs> file and then he uh gets his mission and then we cut to the theme that's not used a ton uh but is a fantastic theme and that is the end of the first mission impossible uh mike what are your thoughts about it the first movie uh re-watching it um and then yeah. let's think of a rating system Um, I, I still really like this movie. I think that obviously it's, it's dated now for some things that obviously the technology, right. It's a spy movie. So those kinds of things age. Um, but I think instead of aging and being, um, like, uh, 
not like instead of it not being fun, I think it adds a lot of charm and like intrigue. Um, and it's kind of something like, at least for my generation, you look at and you're like, oh my gosh, like the old tech, you know, that's, yeah. that's really neat. And, um, so yeah, I still really love this movie. It's one, of, it's still one of my favorites. I think it's also like you said at the beginning, it's a great TV movie. This is, yeah. a, I mean, we talked about Jurassic Park three being one of the all time great TV movies because it's, it's tight. It, um, you know, it's quick, it's fast paced. This movie is similar in some ways. It's, it's, you know, it, it doesn't leave, there's not a lot of fat. No, it's tight. The whole movie's really tight. It's really easy to watch. Um, there's no part where you're like kind of drifting or it feels pushed. I agree. It's again, it's the age stuff that catches up with it. But to me, some of these sequences are some of the best spy sequences and are used in spy movies in the future. I even think about like the Born Identity, which was a revolutionary spy series. They pull from some of this confusion, some of the tension that. Mission Impossible brings up here that De Palma used that De Palma is so great at using the Prague sequences. I think the caper sequence in this is unrivaled, unparalleled, um, and it just begins the foundation of this franchise. So we're going to use masks as our ranking system. So we're going to have five masks, uh, five masks being the best, one mask being the worst. Uh, how, how would you rate this first one? Again, this is going to set the tone, so we might have to do a re-ranking, yeah. but what, what would you do, rate yeah, it? We'll have to do a re-ranking for sure, but I'm giving this four out of five masks. I'm going to say the same. I think four out of five masks. I think this... Because this sets the tone of the franchise and this sets a lot of the tropes, again giving credit to the television show that set a lot of the foundations of this, but this sets the tropes that we will see throughout the franchise. And, uh, I think four out of five, even, even with some of the outdated, you know, the final sequence with the CGI, that's a little bit outdated, the technology, but it's such a great film. It's tense. It's such a great spy film. I feel like that, that, yeah, that point about the outdated CGI, I mean, it really is a mystery movie, right? And I feel like the mystery covers up some of those cinema sins, if you will. Yeah, because the mystery is what drives it. And the idea that it's a team leader. I also think this is a bold movie for the time because imagine... Think of the, the the all the different franchise reboots that have happened in the last ten years, and they would make the main one of the main characters from the original foundational franchise the villain. It's it's pretty it's a pretty bold, bold movie. It would be like if they for the most recent Scream, if they made Dewey the villain, like yeah. they teased that, but they like they never did it. Like actually yeah. making Dewey Ghostface, that would be crazy. That would be. I feel that was the first one that came to mind. That that was the first one that came to mind. I was trying to think of like one of the um, one of the uh, um, superhero movies that we have these days, um, but those characters are kind of uh, immortalized in a way. There's not really. I guess it would be like. Uh, it yeah. would be like if you made a Magnum PI movie and you made uh, 
magged him like a really dark, like you made him a really yeah. dark character. You made uh, the the guy who's the butler in that show, like the villain. Um, or it's kind of like what Scooby-Doo, the 2002 Scooby-Doo, where they made Scrappy-Doo the villain. Do you remember what? that? No, I never saw that because the Scooby-Doo movie was the one. Bad. They were terrible. And they, but it was either the first one or the second one, and they made Scrappy do the villain, and I, I hated it. I was like, I'm out, I'm out. That's what, that's what I'm sure some fans felt like. But to me, the the bold moves worked, and it set up this franchise for two plus decades of cinema mastery. But yeah, next up, Mission Impossible Two, which is very different from the it film we just watched. But in, in a lot of reasons, I mean, it has a lot of reasons why it's different. But I'm excited. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mike, any, any final words before we uh, light this match and self destruct? I think we've already uh, self-destructed probably. Yeah, but. certainly. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm excited to see the rest of the movies. I'm excited. I'm excited for the new one to come out this summer. So, yeah. And Mission Impossible 2, John Woo. Least Important Things is a podcast about the most important of the least important things in pop culture and entertainment. You can be part of the show by leaving a voicemail at www.speakpipe.com slash least important things or visiting our website at leastimportantthings.com and clicking the leave a voicemail button. You can email the show at leastimportantthings at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter at Luke H. Ferris or Least Important Things on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll talk to you soon.